This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. Back on the show, returning from his pilgrimage, is Sajid. What's up, Sajid? What up, Avi? And uh, this week, we have a guest. Judge Ron Del Pozo is a retired California Superior Court judge. He was a district attorney for about 10 years, maybe more. He served on the Superior Court bench for years and years, and he has been in our lives as we've practiced criminal defense. He's been a mentor to Sajid, and we're just really glad to have Judge Ron Del Pozo. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've been listening to all your podcasts. You you told me I was the first to respond uh, with the thumbs up on your first one, which I thought was excellent. And I think you're doing a great service to the community. Thank you for that. Thanks, Judge. On this week's episode, uh, we're going to have conversations where we talk about bail, how bail can affect our practice. We're going to talk about the plea negotiation process and share some of our thoughts about it. And then we're going to talk about the recall effort of Judge Aaron Persky. He's a judge who sits in the county of Santa Clara. He was the judge who presided over the trial and sentencing of Brock Turner. So insofar as the Brock Turner case and the sentence is connected uh, or not connected to the recall, we're going to chat about that a little bit. And then at the end of the show, we're going to do our things. Welcome, Judge. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. You know, you and I actually go way back. I have known you since the early 2000s and spent a summer with you as a as a judicial extern back in 2004 before I started law school. Do you remember that? Yes, certainly. And uh, I think you were in drug court at the time. And there were six of you that summer, so I didn't have much time to spend with you that summer. Yeah, but it was still an amazing introduction to the criminal justice process. At that point, I wasn't interested in public defense. Little did I know that shadowing you that summer would then kind of launch me into this career of criminal law. And then and then years later, I'm, we're, I'm appearing in your courtroom doing trials before you handling different cases. And so it's a, it's a really small world. And now you're here with us. Who would have thought that that chance encounter in 2004 would have led to the connection on Aider and a Better? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So Judge, one of the roles that you played, especially towards the latter part of your career, was you were a trial department in our, our county courthouse, the Hall of Justice, where felony trials were being sent to you and your department, uh, either for trial, but uh, also for discussions uh, where, where if uh, the DA, the, the defense, the client, uh, or the accused uh, could come to an agreement, then the case could resolve short of trial. Or if they couldn't come to agreement but needed the court's input to kind of influence the outcome of a case. Yeah, and so I wanted to talk to you about that first. Um, and you became known by uh, as a as a kind of a go-to place for cases to be sent for the potential resolution. Would you agree with that kind of uh, reputation that you had in the court courthouse? The, the the presiding judge would send cases out uh, on Monday for trial and or discussion to many departments, but I would get fifteen to twenty, whereas some other judges would get two or three. So I think that was indicative of, of the uh, experience that I had in settling cases. Yeah, and so with that experience, I mean, did you take pride in, in that role, being a facilitator to effectuate ultimately what we, what we hope would be fair outcomes for particular criminal cases? I was honored that they thought of me that way, though, to be honest with you, a few years in, I think I felt I was getting typecast and I wasn't mm-hmm. getting enough trials. So I asked uh, to uh, be sent more go uh, cases that had to go, the life cases and stuff. But it was it was uh, certainly a great experience to do all those negotiations and plea bargains. And I, uh, in business, before I was a lawyer, because I didn't go to law school until I was 30, I uh, 
uh, was trained under Dale Carnegie's system and uh, knew a lot about um, negotiations and things and how to handle it. And basically, the number one rule would be I needed to see the parties and see how they were interacting to decide how much input I needed to give into these discussions. If they were doing pretty well on their own, I'm just going to sit back and be more of a, a moderator. Or an, uh, and But if they're not moving at all, I start to become extremely proactive to try to uh, see where the... Uh, objections were on both sides, so to speak, just like in sales. The one thing that happens in plea negotiation in California is that the district attorney's office sets the charges. So if they charge a person with a robbery, then that's what the charge is. But the judge has power over deciding what sentence to give as long as the legislature allows the judge to have that power. So if the ju- you know if the legislature says we're going to take power away from judges then that what I just described isn't true. So there's the charges and then there's the the amount of time that a person might face, the power to reduce a charge from felony to misdemeanor in some cases and then some really powerful uh, discretion about strikes in California. D- did you ever feel or do you have kind of a viewpoint about that system and when to exert pressure? Well, the DA has a lot of power. Everybody knows that. And in, in, in setting the charges, I can't uh, reduce a robbery to a, a, a misdemeanor. Uh, there's many serious charges that a judge can't touch. Uh, most charges a judge can't, uh, serious charges a, a judge can't reduce. There are those ones called wobblers uh, that can be a felony or a misdemeanor. But uh, for the most part, the DA sets the charges, and that's extremely powerful. Um, if, if I think the DA's uh, got a weak case or something unreasonable, um, as being somewhat unreasonable in their offer, in other words, robbery, and I want five years or something, one thing that I normally can do is say, all right, how, how about if you get your robbery charge, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm going to give them a, a six-month sentence or a year sentence or something like that, compensating on the other end where robbery would normally carry a heavier sentence. I can uh, exert more justice into the case by giving uh, the defendant uh, a uh, lesser sentence. Yeah, I mean, to Avi's, to dovetail from Avi's question, one of the things that's frustrating or difficult to navigate for us as public defenders is the lack of control that we have over the charges. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you, uh, given what you just described in terms of the prosecution's uh, general kind of stranglehold on the on the charging document did you feel uh, on occasion powerless or were there occasions where you felt like you wish you had more ability as a judge to alter the charging documents to um, reduce a charge that otherwise might not be able to be reduced by law you know any thoughts about that yeah many times uh, many times uh, you get, uh, especially with the younger DAs who didn't feel that they, uh, if, if, if they reduce something, they might, uh, you know, they've got the pressure back at the office because they don't want to be perceived as being weak. And I think sometimes they struggle in doing the right thing and, and uh, because of what they're concerned about, how it's going to be perceived in their office. So you fight that and I fight that um, as well. So I have to try to convince them uh, either by, as, as Avi mentioned earlier, pointing out the weaknesses in the case or just go to their moral... <laughs> uh, uh, Tug at their conscience. Conscience and yeah. say, uh, we got to do the right thing in this case, you know. Yeah, and, and to that end, I mean, so there's the charges, and sometimes those charges by, by law trigger certain mandatory minimum penalties. Um, some charges uh, carry with them 
um, life sentences that can't be reduced. So I guess I'm asking a leading question here Mm -hmm. because I personally would love to see uh, more uh, latitude for judges like yourself to be able to reduce a charge or to find certain or make certain findings to reduce a um, mandatory life sentence to something else uh, that may be merited in a particular case. It's interesting you should mention that because I clerked in a public defender's office. One thing I realized pretty quickly in in clerking at the public defender's office is the power that the DA had. So when I went to um, interview, I interviewed at both uh, for a job, uh, I interviewed at both public defender and DA's offices. And I was very happy to get the, the DA job because I had realized how much power they had to effectuate justice. Um, and uh, I felt uh, that uh, having seen the other side, uh, worked at the public defender's office, that uh, that was a great experience for me um, and that I could be uh, have a better perspective in how to resolve cases than someone who didn't have any experience on the other side at all. So one of the things that you might be talking about is uh, when we see a police encounter mm-hmm. and we think that there's some unlawful, some illegality with it, like our clients are uh, stopped for no reason, they're searched for no reason, they're searched without a warrant, and there's no exception to it. As public defenders, we fight, you know, and we go through audio tapes and transcripts and we cross-examine. But if we can kind of persuade the district attorney in the case and they agree uh, that there's something wrong with what happened, they can just dismiss it, you know, and so the the keys are with them. So if you want, if you kind of have that in your heart, you you can do good stuff, but as long as you also have discretion to do it, right? I mean, if it's all command and control, you know, and you want to do something and you're being told you can't, that makes it really tough. Well, the interesting thing with that is, again, you talk about pressure. The DA would be under enormous pressure if they ever dismissed uh, a case involving police agencies because uh, the police agencies would be up in arms. Like, why did you dismiss our case? Uh, We often don't think about the pressures that are um, thrust upon DA's shoulders, who they have to answer to, what kind of um, expectations that, that they're facing within their own offices, from outside their offices, from the community, from police departments, and how that and plays a role in those discussions that ultimately and, end up before a court like yourself. And you mentioned police departments, and you would hope that the judge doesn't feel those pressures as we'll be getting to Judge Persky's right. issue. It's a, it'll be a segue later. But who do the judges go to first uh, for endorsements Yeah, when they run for judge? Right. Law enforcement. Yeah. Law and order. Not the you public know, defender's tough on, Tough on crime. Right. The, um, yeah. So can I go back to that? My, my question that I was alluding to earlier was, do you think that there is uh, room in the law to uh, change or expand to permit uh, judges more uh, power within the plea bargaining process to uh, reduce charges, to dismiss charges, to make findings, to reduce a potential life sentence, mandatory life sentence to uh, something less? Do you think that's something that our system can improve by doing? I do think that uh, that would be a good idea um, to give the judge uh, that type of latitude. Uh, Traditionally, though, that's been the uh, DA's uh, playground to uh, formulate the charges and do the right thing, and they're trusted to do the right thing in the cases. I think if you look at the way the politicians acted, and we'll get into the Persky case later, uh, how did they react? They set mandatory minimums as soon as Judge Persky gave a lenient sentence. Right. In that case, you know, the politicians reacted, both Democrat and Republican, by, well, we're going to pass a law to make sure this never happens again. 
uh, even though it may or may not have been the right thing to do in that particular case. So it ties the judge's hands in the future. Yeah. So that seems to be the uh, reaction. And uh, again, who do politicians go to for endorsements? Police agencies are one of the biggest endorsements right. that yeah, they I- can give politicians. When a judge has some power to use, it's very important to us as people who represent indigent clients and people of color to be able to go to a judge who's willing to have the power and use the power. And it's sometimes hard in the plea negotiation process or when we have these criminal justice reforms where our clients, you know, for example, there's some move to get a mandatory minimum, right? There's some move to say, well, a judge didn't exercise his or her power correctly, so we're going to remove that power in every single case. So many of the cases that are being actually litigated and handled are are our our clients' cases. You know the cases of the public defender. When in the context of plea bargaining, one one question I have is, when you're handling a case, how do you capture kind of the individuality of the case, right? This this balance, right? Where we always want to demonstrate to the court that there's something unique about our the humanity of our client in a particular case, but also treat people all the same. You know, those that how do, how do you, in the plea bargaining context, deal with that? Well, that's, that's a great question. You know, people want equal justice and blind justice. First of all, people uh, need to understand that we never know, uh, the judges virtually never know what the nationality of the client is. Sure, we uh, may hear their name when we're discussing it in chambers, but I haven't met the defendant. They, they're not even out there when we're discussing cases. Um, so I don't know what color they are or anything when we first begin discussing a case and make resolutions and then and, and, and until I get out there and face them for the uh, a plea. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, uh, but equal does not always equal justice. Equal uh, is not always fair uh, in certain circumstances. And... Um, if it was, that's all you do is plug the uh, charges into a computer, and uh, they would spit out. Uh, you wouldn't a need sentence. judges, right? right. You just look at charge, and you'd say, right, six days for first one, a year for the second, or yeah. whatever. And uh, where your clients, and I want to get into this, so I'll do it now. Where your clients are at a disadvantage generally, and this will be a segue into your bail segment, is basically they're more likely to be in jail because they couldn't make a bail. And uh, whereas the private attorney's clients are out there um, changing their lives, basically, uh, during all these months, because you was, if you were a private attorney and your client was out, you'd be saying, okay, uh, so what do you need to do? You need to get into school. You need to get a job. You need to show the judge that uh, you're a good prospect uh, for uh, rehabilitation and not committing crimes in the future. So, um, and, and basically that's what the uh, private attorneys uh, do. They school their clients to get a job, get into treatment, uh, because drugs and alcohol are often behind behavior, and, uh, and uh, get into school if you can, or a trade or something, so that when we come back in front of this judge to discuss the case, I've got a lot to talk about and all the things you're doing. Now you're on track. You weren't on track before, now you're on track. Well, if your clients are in jail, which uh, most of your felony clients certainly are, as public defenders, you're at a tremendous disadvantage because we're looking at the last thing your client did, and that was the act. That's the last thing we know, and and they're not in any rehabilitative state, so it makes it much more difficult for you to get the same sentence uh, or a lower sentence than you would get uh, if your client wasn't in jail. Yeah, I think that's... Like why we were thinking about these two things together, the plea bargaining process, 
and the bail process. They're really about if you're going to have a negotiation, what kind of leverage do you have? And if you have your client who's incarcerated and you have a, a really strong case, you have a strong case, strong, defensible like a strong case. defensible case, you've, you have, it's a gray area type case, but it's strong for us uh, where there's questions. But then those questions are then shifted into something like, well, we'll release him right now with no strike, you know, and, and the power has it connects, you know, between us and the prosecutors if on the plea bargain. Yeah, yeah, if he pleads. Yeah, the, we, we call, I call it the devil's bargain. Plead today, get out today. Our clients are essentially faced with this question of what's the price of their freedom to a degree. And oftentimes I had many clients that were fighting a case tooth and nail from the first day all the way till that date of trial. They're ready to go. They're fired up. And then they um, they uh, are presented this offer of plead to the plead to the sheet or plead to the, all the charges and you'll get out today. And because they're sitting in custody, because they're not in the gallery, they're in the box. And if you get convicted at trial, you're looking right at x amount of time or or more time. So often, clients that have at least in from our perspective, defensible cases will will plead. Whereas that same client, if they were out of custody. Uh, are not faced with those same pressures. They're not faced with having to go back to the jail that night and falling asleep in a jail bed and not knowing uh, how long they're going to be in custody. Um, and so those the, the pressures that they face are dramatically different. Yeah, I think the judge pointed out, I mean, one thing that the opportunity that you have when you're not incarcerated to help your attorney with investigation, you know, in terms of these are some, here's some leads or, you know, here's my job records, you know, which might be harder to get if the person's incarcerated or the ability to work on yourself so that we can come to the judge and say, he's been through a uh, intensive outpatient or inpatient drug treatment program that's just not available in our jails. Some of our jails, I like to, I like to think about when I have an incarcerated client, how to advocate for them and think about, well, what opportunities do they currently have while incarcerated? And a lot of times the only thing they can do is like some sort of individualized journaling program, you know? Uh, but if they're doing it, if, if they're doing everything available to them, then that's what we have to talk about, not yeah. the... Uh, uh, well, I think that's what, Judge, yeah. you and I had a conversation yesterday over the phone, and one of the things that we talked about is wanting judges and DAs or anyone that has that, that decision-making authority to look at our clients relative to their circumstances. Um, and so I think you described gr- really well what a relatively affluent individual who's accused of crime might be able to afford. They, they're going to be able to afford bail. They might be able to afford getting into school, getting into treatment programs. And then our clients who may not be as well to do, even if they're out of custody, uh, what are they doing relative to their circumstances? They, the best that they might be able to do is get the local job at the fast food chain, whereas the more well-to-do person might be able to get the job at Apple. Um, and uh, for a judge to be able to see those people within those contexts and, and not necessarily see that the Apple job is necessarily better or more deserving of compassion than the kid working at the McDonald's down the street. Any thoughts about that, Judge? Yeah, I mean, I talked about it with you yesterday. Um, I like to see somebody working. I mean, to me, um, since most crimes are theft-related or drug-related or something, if somebody's working, they have less, uh, there's less of a chance that they're going to commit a theft crime. There's less of a chance that they're using drugs and, and everything else. So uh, that's something you can present as a public defender. But like you say, you know, so many of your clients are in, in jail and you aren't even able to prevent, present that. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, you asked earlier, and this is how we got into it, you know, as far as equal justice and everything else, judges look at something called prospects. What are the chances of this person's going to come back? Uh, is this a one-time thing and everything else? And if you're out and about and you can show employment, you can show you're in a uh, rehabilitation and everything else, you're going to get a lesser sentence. And the, the thing about prospects is, um, so the bail decision has two factors in California. Uh, it has a public safety factor and it has a coming to court factor, you know, essentially. And so when we can show that a person made all their court dates previously, when we can show that they have community ties, when we can show that the amount of bail that they're able to pay, even if it's $500 or $1,000, is uh, going to ensure that they come to court, whereas if they had lots of means, you know, maybe that $500 would not be as good an ev- of an incentive. Like, that's the way we usually argue. But one thing I'm kind of hearing from you about the prospects is the release decision is connected to public safety. You know, we think about, well, public safety means keeping them locked up. Uh, but if you have somebody who's actually released and able to get their license while they're, you know, while they're pending their case or um, get a job, like those get into treatment, get into treatment. The idea about public safety and incarceration don't actually fit. Like it's actually maybe public safety favors release sometimes. It doesn't always fact, you know, favor holding in. But we kind of think about it. I personally think about it that way. Sometimes. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I was, I've always, I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of the interruption that incarceration creates in people's lives. We we know it from our clients' cases that one arrest can lead to them being evicted from their homes, losing their job, getting kicked out of school. And then when that one night or even that one week or a month in jail can just have such long-term ramifications and essentially may ultimately lead to perpetuating their criminal behavior because they end up without the resources that they could have had or might have had otherwise. I mean, what I'm hearing from you, Avi, is that we kind of turn that whole analysis on its head and say, you know what, if maybe... Um, by releasing this person, even though our instinct is to say keeping them in because we don't want him to commit further crimes, by releasing them, we actually in the long term or in the aggregate are investing in them not committing future crimes. Is that is that yeah, kind of what I you're mean, alluding to? Well, in so it doesn't all have to be uh, you're staying in jail the whole time or you're being released with whatever bail is set on some schedule that has nothing to do with you, right? Like it could be about being released with supervision I, I wish that the investment that we make in people when we give them probation could happen in some sort of non-custodial pretrial setting. You know what I mean? Like yes. just that when you are convicted sometimes in our courts, you wind up in a better position than when you're f- pre-conviction in terms of your treatment and your rehabilitative prospects in terms of the, and these are community investments in people that are connected to convictions. You know, we'll have opportunities for folks if you if you we can get you some conviction of some sort of low-level offense, then you can go to a treatment court, or you know, like you were working in the drug court, right? And those were, it it would just be really wonderful if there were some opportunities through pretrial release that are kind of service, rehabilitative, social work, and not just holding the person in. But yeah, I, I can't, I don't want to speak too ill of you know uh, the people who are doing counseling work in the jail, and I, no, I don't mean to. Do I don't that. think I, I think it's a uh, for me from my experience with our clients and just being there physically seeing the jails. I think it's a resource issue. It's the it's a bandwidth issue. Just the sheer number of individuals there with drug issues, um, and then oftentimes that their addiction is essentially just being dormant, and that 
they'll stay in for six, eight months on the pendency of their case. Then ultimately they'll resolve, they'll get out. But that, and that addiction just kind of flares right back up as soon as they step out of the jail door. You know, we're in an era now where the, the, the hot topic of the day is bail reform to address some of the inequities that we've already talked about on in this discussion to release people into the community rather than holding them incarcerated, but re- releasing them with supervision and certain conditions that they do attend treatment, that they uh, seek out gainful employment during the pendency of their case. So I wanted to ask you, Judge, um, any thoughts on, on bail reform, on ways that our system can better create fair outcomes so that when a client is a client of mine is before a court like yours that he has he or she has equal access or opportunity to avail themselves of progress and growth in the community just like you mentioned just like the private attorney client who uh, can afford it any any thoughts on how we level that uh, playing field not a whole lot, and, and, and I'd hope that you guys as public defenders who have to fight this bail thing might have some more, mm-hmm. uh, some better input than I would as a judge, but just to go over some of the factors that a judges consider in setting bail, there are many. First, uh, we have posted bail schedules. What is the bail schedule for each crime? Uh, this crime is a 487 uh, grand theft, and it carries a $10,000 bail schedule. And it's a guideline for the judge to use. And then the judge can deviate depending on all the other things that I'll talk about here in, a, in very quickly. The seriousness of the alleged crime, the uh, past criminal uh, record, uh, and any outstanding warrants that the person has. Have they missed court before? Uh, their ties to the community, the probability of them making their future court appearances, their risk to public safety. I know right. you don't like to hear that as a public defender. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, many public defenders have argued to judges over the years, and I've heard it many times, that no, that you, that's not supposed to be taken <laughs> into consideration. But it's it's one of the factors, and potential flight risk, of course, especially sure. if you have somebody who's uh, not from the city, uh, county, or uh, state, or country even. Right. Um, those are some of the things you can use to, uh, that you do think about in deviating from posted bail schedule. So you could have a crime that's $10,000 bail, but the person's from China, and you may, you may set it at a million dollars because the, the potential flight risk is so heavy. Right. Or make conditions, uh, do set it at less and, and uh, have them turn in their passports and different other th- things. So those are the considerations we make. And, of course, the bail schedule alone, uh, if we set it at that, your clients are screwed, basically, yeah. at that point. Because many people don't understand that your clients can't rub two nickels together uh, right. most of the time. They don't have access to $1,000. If the bail company says you have to put $1,000 down or $2,000, they have no access to that. Right. You may as well be saying 20000 or 50000 that's why what 85% or more of uh, of the pu- of the defendants use public defender services. Yeah, it's pretty crazy like how destructive we've dis- we've set up we've agreed to this system, right? That's just so socially destructive. Like that yeah. if our clients able to come up with $1000, you know, what actually is their life like once they're out in terms of rent, in terms of making being able to keep a storage container, you know, in terms of uh paying a lease on a uh, like some location that they're able to live at, you know, like the if they make the trade-off, you know, the bargain that Sajid described, and if or if they maybe tap their family members who also don't have means, for to what end, right? Like it's it's a, uh, I mean, this and the drug conversation we were just having kind of just make me think about how 
there's such a mismatch between how we handle criminal cases in our society and what our society's values are, right? Like a health problem of people who are dealing with drug addiction. When we fit it into a criminal system, we wind up with no good answers. You know, we're just kind of fumbling around looking for the right, well, how do we release them without making sure they commit another crime and getting them someday to treatment? Well, it's just the the way we've set up this whole thing is is problematic. And with bail, you know, we've decided that we're going to have this system where paying cash to a private company is going to provide for release when that's not really connected to whether the person actually comes back to court or, you know, like the, the things that we care about just seem mismatched. Yeah. The only thing is that company will go out and find that person and bring them in and they'll find them in Mexico or Canada or anywhere else too. And that's a comfort to the court uh, in that sense. Uh, they do provide that service. And how do, how did you guard against kind of speculative fears about public safety risks versus kind of more well-founded ones. So if a person has, you know, some jail call saying, I'm going to go harm witnesses, then you can feel pretty confident that there's some public safety consideration that you should plug in. But how do you prevent the the idea of public safety to not be a proxy for something else, maybe that we don't want to be considered, you know, like, so a person doesn't have money, you know, so you, you have to think about, okay, well, they're so much different than the, the private attorney client who shows up in the suit with mom and dad there. How did you deal with that? Yeah, well, you got several issues there. Um, the thing about the bail, uh, you, you hit it on the head. Uh, your clients basically uh, can't even make bail schedule, and you've got to figure out how to argue that this person needs to be released. They've got a job. They've got the, this or, or, you know, they're going to be, like you say, more apt to commit criminal behavior in the future. You lose your job. Uh, you're going to be more apt to commit criminal behavior because you got to uh, figure out how to pay your rent and support your family and everything else. But uh, the money aspect is extremely discriminatory against your clients right off the bat. And a lot of people, you know, always point to race and and things like that. But a lot of it's, uh, you know, um, is it de facto or de jure, uh, uh, the ramifications. Uh, uh, to use the legal terminology, uh, the minorities are, are poorer than Caucasians uh, in almost every county we have. And therefore, they end up in jail uh, and not being able to make bail. Is it because they're black and Latino? Uh, not necessarily, and I would say no, of course. Uh, it's because they're poor. And uh, because uh, blacks and Latinos are poor, then they end up in jail for longer periods of time. But with the bail issue, you have a few other things going on. And it's things that, uh, going back to pressures a little bit, the DA standing over there is going to want that guy in jail. Uh, what do you think of the primary reason they want him in jail? Leverage. You I mean, did, we, we talked about it earlier, the leverage that they then have in that plea negotiation where yeah. they, they've, they've, uh, they have that person essentially in a little bit of a stranglehold. And That's when the exactly they go to trial six months a year later and all of a sudden okay I'll let you out credit time served right uh, because you've been in jail the DA's perspective is I don't want I don't want this person out number one he might commit some crimes but really that's number two number one is uh, is oh my God I'm gonna have a hard I may have to go to trial on this case and right. I'm gonna have a harder time convicting him and. And he might do some good things out there in the meantime, and I'm going to lay a lesser sentence on this guy. Yeah. So it is leverage. You hit it on the head. I didn't know you were going to answer it <laughs> yeah. so quickly and so well, but it is leverage. Yeah. And well, the second, we, and the uh, second we live and breathe in the courthouse, <laughs> Judge. <laughs> well, I mean, you have to, I mean, 
listen, I heard it. Uh, you know, I was in both offices, even yeah. though I was in the public defender's office for a short period of time. I know, I know the, uh, I know the theory, and I know the reality. Yeah. Uh, and uh, leverage is a big part of it, and the DA hates to see. Now, I, I will say, in a sex case, uh, the DAs are a little bit different, and sure. they have more legitimate concerns. <laughs> if you're going to release somebody who's allegedly raped someone or something else. Right. I don't think that's the primary concern of the DA in that type of case. Right. Yeah, right. But when you get the lower level cases or something else, um, it's a, uh, they're thinking volume and they want to settle their cases and they want to make sure the guy gets some time. And what better way to keep him in jail uh, with high bail so that uh, uh, later on you can work out a disposition where he served most of his time already. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think the case we're talking about is where you uh, – you received the offer from the prosecutor saying, we'll release you right now. And well, okay, so the idea that they need to be held for some public safety purpose doesn't seem to fit with the prospect of being released right away. You know, like, okay, it's a, I see this case as a six-month case. Oh, but once you're at seven months, oh, no, he can't be released or else, you know? And it just, uh, so I think that's the uh, sexual assault cases where you're dealing with much larger terms of incarceration doesn't come up as much as like a you know possession of stolen goods or right. you know that sort of thing yeah so but the bail thing uh if they can eliminate the these uh, financial emphasis of, of of that being the yeah uh, the scheduled bail and everything uh your clients are going to get a lot fairer shake all around in yeah the criminal justice i think system. we're we're headed in that direction i think the use of pretrial services programs are uh, the emphasis of them in Santa Clara County in particular is moving in the, at least from our perspective, moving in the right direction. I think the idea of uh, sliding scale bail essentially either formally or even informally, I think based on those factors you described, um, essentially what's going to, what's going to get this person to come back to court um, and $500 for um, a more impoverished client, it, it may be a really significant amount versus, like Avi alluded to earlier, $500 for that for a more well-to-do client is actually not going to ensure the, their presence. So essentially um, using these holistic factors that you just laid out, but actually um, breathing life into them, I think is really, I think the code sections are actually laid out pretty well. I think it's just a matter of um, looking at are having courts and judges looking at our clients and seeing their circumstances, seeing what they, where they're at in their in their uh, livelihoods, um, and then making bail decisions accordingly. And and, and having um, attorneys fight about it, you know, yeah. and having attorneys bring the issue to the judges because you know, it's hard for me, like you know, when I'm representing clients to fight about bail, you no, know, it, but it, you have to you have to do we, it. And then just from my perspective, it was not something that we were. It was not something that I feel was um, really a emphasized part of our practice. And so it did become kind of an encumbrance. Like when your client says, oh, get me a bail hearing. you got to file all this paperwork. you got to do all this research. And it's, um, but it's necessary and it humanizes our clients. And I think we, we have to do it on the individual cases so that it ultimately has kind of an aggregate impact. Um, before we shift to the recall, I had one question to go back to our plea bargaining mm-hmm. discussion. So given your experience as a, as a central figure in a plea bargaining uh, system or a system that use, utilizes plea bargaining so much, I mean, so many of our cases, I think, what's the numbers, like 98% of cases resolved by way of plea bargain, yeah, approximately? Yeah, it's over 90 for state and federal cases. Or dismissed, yeah. Uh, do you, Judge, feel that that is a 
adequate means of 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 justice uh does it ultimately reach the 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 truth of uh, particular allegations do you um and then a corollary to that question is are there ways to for us to improve the plea bargaining system but i'll ask you that first one i mean do you feel like the system that we all have been operating within and that you were a central figure in was uh essentially a adequate means of justice well both sides do make the presentations to the judge at those uh plea bargaining sessions and the judge does what they can what a judge can within their power and sometimes the da's react uh, to things that have been pointed out by the defense attorney and change the charges mm-hmm. often in fact or drop certain charges that maybe they don't feel they could prove beyond a reasonable doubt based on some investigation that you, as a defense attorney, have handed them or something. So yeah, there, you know, all you can ever achieve with such volume is substantial justice, mm. right? And even in a jury trial, yeah, um, you know, I like to think the juries do the, the right thing most of the time, and right. um, but they're still dealing with human beings, and all we can try to achieve is some kind of substantial justice. What a lot of people don't realize is most crimes are not reported and uh, most crimes never see a police officer or a DA or anything else. Um, I personally think it's less than 10% or 20% of the crimes Hmm. that actually occur ever reported. So the criminal justice system isn't there to punish every crime. It's there to basically uh, be a threat uh, to, hey, you can't do this in society. This is inappropriate conduct. And this is what happen, can happen if somebody reports that crime. All these bad things are going to happen to you. But most crimes don't get reported. Most rapes don't get reported. Murders do, but uh, when you start getting into thefts and everything, deals are made all the time. How many stores prosecute out of everybody in the mall, that uh, the shoplifters? Same four or five stores in the mall coming back. All the, the rest of them uh, uh, don't even prosecute the crime. So I think the, uh, the system achieves substantial injustice, <laughs> obviously, uh, again, uh, the equality factor uh, can improve if your clients ha- have the ability to be in better standing than they are right now. You know uh, uh, very well because your client got n- no jail on a on a drug sales case, right. uh, Sajid, which is uh, one in a hundred, or uh, I don't know what it is. Have you ever had anybody get no jail on a... Uh, Drug uh, sales case, pretty none, rare. None of my clients get any jail yet. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, well, that but you, what you're referring to is a case of mine uh, that I that I brought, not I brought to you, that was sent to you, uh, where a client who was out of custody could afford bail was able to prove his uh, standing in the community to the point where Your Honor ultimately didn't give him a jail sentence, even though all signs pointed to a jail sentence. Um, and I think you, I recall you mentioning during our discussions this exact discomfort that you had with whether he was benefiting uh, from his, for lack of a better term, affluence uh, to be able to afford bail and to get into these programs and those benefits not being necessarily afforded to uh, to my other clients who would, would be in custody on similar cases. What would have happened to your client based on your experience if he had been in jail? And uh, the exact same plea bargain was, or the exact same uh, plea was struck. He said he pled open, basically, or uh, conditional no state prison, which means I could sentence him up to a year or whatever he pled. Mm-hmm, right. One of those two things. 
And uh, what would have happened to your client? What, are, what would have been his chances of getting no jail time? Of course, first of all, he'll have already served. He, he, he would have already served several months. Yeah. And then they would have been a lot less because I would have had a, I, I would have had a difficult time making the case for him or, or a more challenging time making the case for him. And again, I would have been trying to uh, show what he was able to accomplish relative to his circumstances in custody. But most of us even myself would would not feel as impressed by those custodial programs versus the all the accomplishments that are being done out in the community that guy had been out for a year or more right. and had been tested and right. shown he was clean and everything right. else and right. uh, i mean they'd been doing programs had doing been doing stuff at family yeah. court orders he'd been doing everything right and here's a guy who's selling drugs because he was using drugs and needed money now he's not using drugs anymore. Right. And you're arguing the judge, he doesn't need to uh, be incarcerated. Uh, he doesn't need to sell drugs anymore. He's yeah. got a job. He's he's going to have his child back from family court, and he, he's not going to give up this child. Uh, and you made all these great arguments, and you got a better deal for your client right? because so what, of it. So what I was um, telling you in those moments, and I, we talked about it yesterday on the phone, was that I want more of my average public defender clients to be given the same opportunities which goes back to bail that they have similar opportunities even if they can't afford the bail schedule that they be given consideration for or or a lower bail amount so that they are not languishing in custody and so that when that moment comes where we're before a judge like yourself that we can make a similar pitch and that they a judge will then look at them relative to their um, circumstances so I think, I think we ought to. Yeah, yeah we. I think we. Well. Our free flowing conversation has uh, has flown. So uh, <laughs> I'm sure you'll edit this anyway. Yeah, no, it's going to be two minutes. <laughs> let's, take a, let's take a little mini yeah, break. let's take a quick break, and then uh, we can come back and talk about recalling judges and Aaron Persky and Brock Turner. before we get started, you have kind of a unique perspective. You worked with Judge Persky at the DA's office. Is that right? Yeah, but I really didn't know him there. Right. Uh, 180 attorneys, and he was on a different floor, and he was only there for a couple of years before he ran for judge. So you put your name in to run for run for judicial office, and he, he did ran first. Actually, he did first, and then you said, uh, "I'll run too." And I'll tell you why. There were two races, and my friend from the DA's office was already in the other race. So I had to run against one DA, so I figured it best be not my friend. It would be the one, the guy that I didn't know had only been in the office for two years. You prevailed in the election. I did, uh, but only after being in a runoff with Judge Persky. The other two candidates, there were four originally. Two of us uh, went on because nobody got 50% with the four candidates in uh, the primary in March or June or whenever it was in uh, 2002. So Judge Persky and I were the two highest vote-getters at both less than 50%, so we went on in a runoff to uh, the final. Did you um, form any sort of relationship with him when you were running against him, like going on like to bar associations or giving your, you know, kind of on the election circuit? The, definitely a relationship, because we uh, 
uh, ran against each other for years. But Judge Persky is a very private person, and it's very difficult to get to know him. Uh, he's, uh, he did, he's uh, very thoughtful and very introspective and, and doesn't talk a whole lot. Um, uh, just generally, that's his personality. It's a lot of thinking and listening and not talking very much. So it's very difficult to get to know him. But uh, if anybody knows him, it was somebody who spent a year on him, uh, with him on a campaign trail, and that was me. After the election, one thing that was kind of, or I found interesting in talking to you is that you then became a judge, and then he was uh, appointed to the bench with your support. You actually supported his uh, appointment. He did. I asked him to come to my investiture, which being the shy introvert that he is, he wasn't going to attend. I don't think it was anything malicious or... Uh, I think it was just his personality he doesn't attend a lot of things. And I said, I, I wish you'd attend. I'd like to say a couple words about you. And in front of 500, 700 people, whoever, uh, at my investiture, I had him stand up, uh, uh, gave him a little praise on how he ran the campaign, and, and all the judges, I turned around and asked them to help get this guy on the bench uh, and get him appointed. Yeah. And then how soon thereafter was he appointed to the bench? Uh, about six months to uh, nine months, maybe. So, which is the process. This is back in 2002, 2003. Yes. You're essentially colleagues on the bench for about a dozen plus years, more than that, actually. What's Judge Persky's uh, reputation on the bench? Uh, how is he perceived? Quiet. Uh, people don't know him. He doesn't write. Uh, we all get uh, write emails. Sometimes it's something as frivolous as USC versus UCLA <laughs> one week or Cal versus Stanford or something, but usually it's legal stuff and he doesn't write on the board at all. He's mm -hmm. a very private person. I think the only emails he wrote is they made him head of uh, some committee because uh, they like to just tell you, hey, you're the head of this committee or whatever. And he was the head of the Speaker's Bureau one year. And yeah. so we got emails from Judge Persky. Other than that, you never heard from him. How about as a jurist, uh, you know, any, was he considered by yourself and other people on the bench to be a thoughtful jurist? You mentioned him being very thoughtful and cerebral. Is that the reputation very, that he maintained as a judge? Well, very cerebral. And uh, I'd like to say yes, or uh, but, sure. uh, but the answer is we do our jobs very independently. Right. And I don't get a lot of feedback on anybody. But I never had any negative feedback when I did uh, from the lawyers or anyone on Judge Persky. If I heard something on very few occasions, it was positive. I honestly didn't even know who he was until um, he what, became famous for this Brock Turner case. I've been practicing in Santa Clara County since 2008, hadn't appeared in front of him. I had colleagues that had appeared in front of him in Palo Alto, um, but then this Brock Turner uh, rape, or I'm uh, sorry, assault with intent to commit rape and uh, uh, digital, digital penetration. penetration of an intoxicated woman case uh, come before I him. I just interrupt. One of the reasons was he did civil part of that time, yeah. and he wasn't always in the criminal division, and you and I have always been in the criminal division. Right. Yeah. So this case uh, lands in his courtroom, um, ultimately is not doesn't resolve uh, for, a, for a variety of reasons, and then goes to trial. And then um, Brock Turner is convicted as charged by, by a jury. Brock Turner is a relatively well-to-do or you know a person from ohio uh, upper, stanford middle upper middle class uh, stanford student accomplished swimmer no prior significant criminal history had some little run-ins with the law but nothing significant and then uh, judge persky ultimately sentenced him to six months in county jail and felony formal probation 
it came on the heels of a letter being written by the victim in the case, uh, which garnered national attention, brought significant attention to the sentence. And essentially, there's been this firestorm where there's an effort to recall the judge by a woman named, or a Stanford professor named Michelle Dauber, and, and her coalition essentially saying that Judge Persky has proven himself to be unable to exercise uh, fairness and equity in sexual assault and domestic violence type cases involving women. And uh, so that's where that's where we are. And, and so there was this, this uh, vitriol that kind of went out into the news cycle last year. It died down for a bit, and now it's coming back because uh, the recall effort is um, picking back up and essentially gaining momentum to get onto the to an upcoming ballot. I'm not sure exactly which ballot, um, but to have someone be able to run against, to have Judge Persky recalled and then ultimately have someone take his seat. So with that context, uh, do sitting judges have the ability to speak out on their own behalves or to defend their sentences or their decision decisions on on cases outside of the courtroom or outside of that particular kind of discrete set of circumstances the answer would be generally no and i think in this case no um this case um i don't know what the appeal status is though um mm. uh, and that that might make a big difference because uh, you guys pay a lot of attention to appeal dates and everything and when a case is finalized and everything I, if it is final, uh, there is a possibility that he could make uh, uh, some kind of statement regarding the case. But knowing him, I don't think he will. Based on some sense of, or based on him being kind of a private person or some sense that... Extremely. What was your take when you saw the sentence, Judge? Did you, from a from an outsider, okay. from an outside perspective, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of Judge Persky, all the documents have been made public, the probation reports, the... Uh, different statements that were made. Uh, did you agree with the sentence? Think it was kind of fair? Did you think that it was light, as so many have called it? Well, first of all, I, I uh, knew a little bit about uh, the case more than the average person. I read everything that was written about the case, the comments in the newspaper. I not only read that, I read everything that was released by the DA's office. They were pressured to release, I think it was 50 pages of certain documents and things. So I read a lot about this case. Um, I read the motions of the attorneys. I read the sentencing memorandums. I read about the testimony of the uh, witnesses, including uh, especially the victim. And, and uh, yeah, I was surprised at the sentence because the jury returned a verdict, and the verdict that they returned would have generally sent the person for prison for what I believed would have been a four- to six-year term. So a six-month sentence was not something that I, I would have expected the judge to give based on what the jury found to be true at the trial. So it was inconsistent with the jury verdict based on other people who have been tried for similar offenses and sentenced for similar offenses in my 30 years or 26, seven years of uh, being around Santa Clara County. And to give somebody not, uh, you know, uh, not only give them probation, but not even give them the maximum one year. I mean, you see people get a year for the first residential burglary without any history. You see people get a year for having several DUIs behind them and having a fourth. Uh, so yeah, it was inconsistent with the jury verdict. But he presided over that case and, and uh, you know, felt that that was the appropriate sentence and the probation office uh, 
officer who wrote the probation report, which the judge reads and considers, uh, thought that it should be a, a local case, which means up to one year, and uh, he agreed and, and gave him the probation. Should he be recalled is the next question? Absolutely not. It's, it's, uh, if he had a pattern of giving light sentences in his cases, then they should consider recalling a judge uh, uh, because uh, a pattern would indicate that there might be some bias against uh, women victims of sexual assault, domestic violence cases. Michelle Dauber turned out to had to be, apparently was a friend of the victim's family, and that's what started all this, and she dove into Judge Persky's cases and uh, had in, apparently interns look into them and everything else to try to establish a pattern because she knew she couldn't do it on one case. Uh, she would need a pattern to show that there was some uh, bias on the part of Judge Persky. And she fell flat on her face. There was no bias. She tried to bring up a couple cases, but they were plea bargains between the DA and the, and the public defender that the judge just okayed. And I'm, I'm not going to ask every, every uh, detail of, of if you guys uh, agree on a, on a uh, plea bargain, the DA and the public defender. I'm just going to accept it 99% of the time. I'm not even going to ask any questions about the case. That's the only way we get through the calendars. And uh, she, she showed no pattern. If there was a pattern, uh, then maybe a recall would be appropriate. And that's probably why a recall is a possibility for judges or any legislators right. to begin with. Right. But there's no pattern here. It's yeah. one case. She got mad at the sentence. M maybe it wasn't the right sentence, but I didn't hear the whole case, and Judge Persky did. The sentence was deemed to be legal. Uh, it was the, a legal sentence. The Judicial Council, I think, did a uh, investigation into it, found it to be a legal sentence supported by the law, uh, which is, it was based on a, in a discretion that was afforded to court or a judge like Judge Persky or yourself, where under certain circumstances, a person convicted of those particular crimes could be granted probation if there were certain findings that were made. I can that, tell you another uh, thing. I mean, I can look back on some of my cases over my 12 years on the bench and even as a DA before that, and I still think about uh, a few that I think I missed uh, that I should have done a little bit differently. When you think about those cases where I should have done those differently, is it always I should have done a harsher sentence or is it no. ever I should have done something different in terms of more programming or more less harsh? Uh, oh, um, uh, usually less harsh hmm. um, as, as a DA and a, and a, a judge. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, usually less harsh. There's still three or four or five or six that roll through my mind uh, from time to time, and a few of them were corrected when they allowed uh, those three strikers to uh, prop 36. Uh, prop yeah. 36. Uh, uh, a couple of a couple of them were released on that uh, that I had been on the three strikes team at the DA's office that I, I didn't really feel should have gone uh, three right. strikes to begin with. Those were two of the cases I remember very well because they always kind of haunted me. I don't know if Judge Persky would say, you know what, now that I look back, I think I made a mistake on that. I don't think he would. As It's interesting because, like you said, what can a judge do? Well, politicians, they can do a mea culpa, right? And yeah. they often do. I blew it. They raise a, you know, I'm sorry. That'll never happen again. What was I thinking? You know, blah, blah, blah. You see it. You don't see that with judges. And whether they can or they can't is what you asked earlier, and that was a good question based on where the appeal uh, if the case is final or not but it, it, it's I think it's a really good question say the case is final and there's no more appeals or anything if if he could come out and make a statement on the case it would be interesting to see what he was 
Now, it's natural for all of us to be defensive about what we do. And maybe um, out of belief that he did do the right thing or maybe out of pure defensiveness, it may not be good for him to come out and just say, uh, I still think I did the right thing. My guess is he'll never, he won't make a comment on it and he'll just uh, talk about the, the reasons why judges shouldn't be recalled over one sentence. You know, you talked about if some judge has a substantial or systematic blind spot or something, you know, like if they routinely are out of the mainstream with other judges, if they are abusive in some way, does that apply for judges who might be too harsh? Like one of the things that we feel sometimes is we look at this recall and it's like you're going to take one case where you believe that a lenient sentence occurred. Would there ever be a recall where we we all agree that we have a mass incarceration problem? It, the voters have repeatedly done things to address the mass incarceration problem. It's a it's a very serious problem. There would never be a circumstance, never, where somebody is recalled for being too harsh. The message that that sends to us is that there's you know kind of, there's always going to be a one way ratchet, right? There will always be nothing wrong with you know sending somebody away for a long time. You know, even, I mean, we'll regret things and, and we'll hope that things get worked out. But, yeah, that's that's the kind of fear that I think Saj and I have talked about before. Yeah, is, yeah well, that was that was the concern that, I, so I came out and Avi was with me and we we started a petition in support of the judge, in defense of the judge, in support of judicial independence. But ultimately it was really about the clients that I, that we represent was uh, trying to counter the message that I thought the recall effort was sending, which was we'd rather have our judges err on the side of being more punitive or more harsh. Essentially, the the message that was being sent is that when a judge is sitting in that seat and is making a decision about whether to impose a sentence that may be more compassionate or more merciful, that they uh, start to think twice and start wondering you know, am I going to get recalled for this? Is there is a, is there a Michelle Dauber out there that's going to pick up this case and put it out into the news, and I'm going to have my livelihood at stake? And so that that judge on a case of ours where there's a minority client or a less well-to-do client is then subject to a more harsh penalty because of that fear. So that was why we came out against the recall. I th- ultimately, for me, it was cl- for me attempting to honor and defend my clients, my force- my future clients against that kind of um, that kind of uh, backlash that could occur. Judge, I wanted to ask you on that regard, do you think that this recall effort does send that message to individual judges, either consciously or subconsciously, that will make them think twice when they're on the bench and having to make a sentence, um, and that they may err on the side of a more harsh sentence for that fear that I just described? Any thoughts about that? You know, my first thought is that this is the only case where a judge has been up for recall in my recollection, so it's not something that should be at the front of the judge's mind it's a rare circumstance sure so from that standpoint i don't think too many judges are going to be affected by it but having said that certainly in a high profile case where it's uh, it's in the news it's serious charges etc like the brock turner case uh you could see where that could possibly affect the judge because it's already high profile it's something everybody heard of and if if the population and the newspapers believe that they blow it and blow it on the side of uh, favorable to the defendant, I could see where that could be a consideration yeah. in a high-profile case, mm-hmm. but not in 99% of the cases. I, I don't see it. Well, I, I would just 
not counter, but just maybe yeah. just a thought is that Brock Turner was a relatively, relatively uh, covered initially. Initially, when it was going through the trial process, I think it was being covered in Palo Alto, at, you know, Stanford Daily, maybe a little bit in the Mercury News. But then it picked up steam when the sentencing occurred. And then when that letter that the victim wrote um, went viral. And so I guess my concern is that we just never know when a particular uh, when scrutiny might fall upon a random case in on a random docket in Santa Clara County. I'm just concerned that subconsciously, I, I understand your point, Judge, but I'm just occur, I'm concerned subconsciously that the message that this recall effort sends is that there might be a time when you know a judge is processing through a sexual assault case or a DV case that falls upon their lap in a trial department, and they make an offer. But in the back of their mind, they're thinking like, I wonder, you know, what if this Mercury News author picks this case up and then then, you know, what 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 will come of my career? You know, am I going to be on the headlines the next day? Well, and I might add to it. And DV is domestic violence. All right. Right. I've been present. Sajan, I'm sure you've been present. You go in chambers and you're talking about a case and you're having a tough conversation about the strengths of the prosecution, the strength of the defense and vice versa. The court wants to do something, you know, and the court has the power to do something. Okay, well, with these charges, I'm seeing, you know, a grant of probation and such and such. Everyone says, okay, that seems appropriate. Client will be resolving the case. And the district attorney says something. Well, I'm just going to object for the record. Uh, You know, I'm just going to I'm just going to note an objection. Pre Brock Turner, I think that was that would be like a normal thing. But post judicial recall auditing of criminal cases, the framing is the judge over the DA's objection gave the guy probation and you know he has to register as a sex offender he has to engage in high-risk sex offender treatment and he has to do uh, between three months and six months of actual incarceration and, and so on and so forth and if he violates his probation he goes to prison for you know eight years but the da said don't do it and the judge did it anyway for me i've, I've actually experienced pressures being exerted on the court in a different light i've been there and uh you've you brought back some bad memories uh, <laughs> uh, when I saw that happen uh, uh, similarly, uh, yeah. where a DA just is very much acquiescing in chambers, and then all of a sudden, uh, Your Honor, for the record, I object. And right. then uh, th- that's the plea, and then they come back asking for a year or something when they were acquiescing to right. something far less earlier and because it hit the papers or something. Yeah, and the way that reads, just like Avi alluded to, the way that reads down the line, they, they're not there in those dis- – the, the average citizen is not there in the courthouse. They're not there in those discussions. They're not there in the in the courtroom to see kind of the tone, tenor, or the context of these interactions, and so then it, it takes on a life of its own. One of the things in Judge Persky's case that was unfortunate uh, is that it was a Stanford uh, student, and he went, and Judge Persky went to Stanford. Right now, Michelle Dauber uh, says that well, Judge Persky, uh, like this guy, was a Stanford athlete. Uh, he wasn't an athlete like Brock Turner was. He was a guy who enjoyed a certain sport, lacrosse or whatever it was, yeah. and he played it on a club team. I- He's not yeah. an, an athlete, but she tries to parallel that, like, ooh, these were guys were both athletes. When you hear that, the suggestion, when you, you, know, you look at the case, you've read all the documents, you said, I didn't preside over the trial the way Persky did. The idea that Judge Persky gave a six-month sentence because of some sort of athletic feeling, is, does that make sense to you based no, on your experience silly. with him? that's silly. No, he wouldn't do that. He is very much uh, 
uh, for women's rights and cares about uh, women's issues and everything else. He cares very much about, for instance, AIDS issues. He, he rode coast to coast uh, on a, a bicycle to raise money for AIDS. He was on the board of the uh, domestic support systems for domestic violence in Mountain View. He got onto the board a year before the election. Uh, so you can, uh, you know, you, you can, uh, some people will take a shot at that as maybe just kind of prepping himself to look good for the election because domestic violence was a big issue in 2002. We both put in our, in our statements, uh, our ballot statements that we uh, fight domestic violence as prosecutors and as I was, and he was on the board. But consuming he was sincere, he, and, and it's time-consuming to be on a board. That's what he chose to do. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, uh, there's never been any indication that he doesn't, uh, that he uh, is going to be favoring a man over a woman or anything like that. He cares very much about progressive issues. I was waiting when this when this story broke when people were asking me my my thoughts or my responses that I would have had a problem if this was a sentence that was afforded to someone in Brock Turner's position his race his affluence his background that wasn't afforded to an average public defender quote unquote client but no one has ever been able to point to any of those uh, disparities or anything like that none of the colleagues that we've worked with that have appeared in front of judge persky were able to w would say anything like that in fact they all said the opposite that they felt that if a quote unquote public defender client was in front of judge persky under similar circumstances that he would have given him the same sentence uh, i have no i have no doubt yeah uh, and this is, you know, you'd think that there would be a little animosity. I mean, I ran against the guy for a year. I didn't like certain couple things he said during the election. That's going to happen. He didn't like something that I said or did during the election. But that's uh, his integrity is never an issue with Judge Persky. It wasn't at any point in a year that I got to know him fairly well. But more than anybody, I'm sure, knows him in the legal profession. Yeah. His integrity, it's sad because integrity, his integrity, like you say, has never been questioned, either as a DA or a, a civil attorney before that or a, uh, a judge. And it's being questioned over this one case. And uh, the, like you said, the athlete thing is silly, uh, whether he's an athlete or a non-athlete. And whether he's a minority or, or a uh, uh, it's silly. I, I, I understand Judge Dauber dug up another case where Not he was. Not judge, professor. Excuse me, <laughs> Professor Dauber. That might be next. Uh, she might want to run. Uh, I understand she dug up this case about the athlete who uh, uh, was, uh, she says, was given preferential treatment by Judge Persky um, because Judge Persky deferred uh, some jail time and, and he was playing football and tried to keep the young man on track. I'm sure I've done that a half a dozen yeah, times. I think or Abby, more. you were just talking about that yesterday. That that's something that we ask for all the time, so that our clients don't have their educations or their jobs or their livelihoods interrupted by a jail sentence, and that the jail sentence can come at a kind of a time that serves all purposes, as opposed to getting them out of. Or it may them, never yeah. come. In that case, what happened was the the the, the kid unfortunately went to Hawaii. To, to do his football thing because the judge doesn't want him losing his scholarship, doesn't want him out of school because, you know, chances of reoffending are going to be high. Right. And the judge and the, the judge says, you know what, I got to keep the. I'm sure I know what he was thinking because I've done it so many times. I got to keep this kid on track. I got to keep him in school. I got to design some sentence that doesn't, you know, destroy this kid's life. 
Um, and so he unfortunately failed to do his classes. He failed to follow through. The guy came back to court, and that's kind of how it got highlighted to, that he had failed to do what Judge Persky had told him to do. And then Judge Persky, at the recommendation of probation, without any objection from the DA, gave him another shot. And I think he may have failed the second time, too. And uh, they felt that that was, uh, you know, that's, that's somehow being pointed out as... Uh, uh, part of a pattern which is just silly we 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 try to keep people on track when i gave your guy that no jail sentence in that uh probably the only time or maybe i think i did it one other time i did a no jail sentence in a uh, in a, a drug sales case and so that right. means less than since i sentenced so many two tenths of one percent got that the other time i mean when i gave it to your guy it was because i didn't want him to be off track he had just gain custody of his son or right. was about right. to his son needed the dad at home so i did an alternative sentence other than jail because he had uh, done all his classes became it was clean and sober for a year year and a half and i want it was more important to keep him on track than to jail him to to prove that i got to be equal or consistent with everybody and jail everyone right and i don't care whether your client obviously is white uh, latino black or anything else it makes no difference in most judges yeah i think that um sometimes we we set up a, an arrangement like there'd be some sentencing after trial or by way of plea and then we try to focus the court and the da on what's happening with our client uh, so that uh, for example he's go in community college and he's about to finish and it is appropriate for us to ask and it's appropriate for the court to consider collateral consequences like you know in, in the immigration context or that mm. this person's close to an AA and if he gets that AA or she gets that AA then they're going to be in a better position to not reoffend and we have this awful I I'm a I don't I don't think our system works uh the way we want it to and that it we have to fight you know to make it better and we have to have these conversations some many times our system has bad outcomes in terms of disproportionality and all that stuff what i sometimes am concerned about is we have all that but then individualized acts of compassion are the red flags you know the whole system's the red flag and the individual act of compassion is the thing that should be like okay well it worked out this time well would he have done it for this person would he have done it for that person or he accepted a plea in a case where somebody got prison I, I i hope that we can think about those moments where somebody exercises compassion and not have those be an indictment of the person but hope that those exercises of compassion happen more frequently well you know? i think you made a good point and collateral consequences is very very uh, important uh, because sometimes to sentence somebody to something really doesn't have much consequence and it's it's right for the circumstance and other times it's the most devastating thing that can happen and i'm going to give you the example that i always gave my law clerks there was a case years ago, and I think this is one you should always put to your interns and as to what they think would be the right thing to do. I remember the the girl was Asian. I can see her right uh, right with me there in the courtroom, and she uh, had done a shoplifting, and she had a moral clause in her contract. It was Stanford, her scholarship contract, uh, which allowed them, if they wanted to, to uh, look at that theft and uh, her to lose her entire scholarship. It was a morals clause. And, of course, she shoplifted. Everybody knew she shoplifted. It was a pretty hefty amount, several hundred dollars worth of, of stuff. It's stuff that she didn't need. It was dresses and uh, things uh, that nobody needed, uh, quantity. It wasn't like one prom dress or anything like that. And she had lifted uh, quite a bit of stuff, several hundred dollars worth from Neiman Marcus. 
And uh, she was facing the possible consequences of losing a Stanford scholarship because of that morals clause. So should you reduce her to the 602, as we call it, trespassing or something that's not going to affect possible losing her scholarship? And that was one example I often gave to my uh, interns. Of, and, and you'll get different answers. Of course, some people would say, no, I should treat her exactly the same and, and give her the exactly the same sentence uh, as everybody else. Same crime, same sentence she should go down on. And others uh, said, no, no, give her the reduced sentence, but increase her uh, penalty on it, make her do more community service or whatever, which is a, you know, a little more, that's where I would be trying to figure out something like to give a little bit over here, but take a little bit over here or something like that. And um, those become the situations where uh, cr treating someone equally isn't, uh, may not be the fairest and just thing to do. Maybe to somebody else who works for his dad's company and uh, is about to take over the company or is not going to have any consequences, right. uh, yeah. can just go down and take the normal uh, thing. And maybe, you know, th this is also the Brock Turner case. I, th I think there's yeah. a possibility that Judge Persky took into consideration a lot of the uh, things that Brock Turner was suffering. Uh, yeah, which, lifetime which many, registration, exactly. felony conviction getting kicked out of school, all of those yeah. factors, and it, essentially deciding that, do we need to incarcerate this young person anymore? At what purpose does that incarceration serve um, above and beyond what's already being served by these other facets of the yeah. of the punishment exactly. of, the, of and, the sentence? And and just to give another example, I, in many cases with, off, uh, there was a case where a poor officer had a drug problem and uh, he called the police to his house because he was in the basement freaking out on drugs, saying that there were people upstairs who were trying to get him. Well, they, they brought out the SWAT team and everything else. The long story short is he was uh, paranoid and uh, he was on drugs. And uh, uh, he's, he was charged with 11550 uh, as a, uh, E as a felon. Which is under the influence while having a firearm. Yeah. And uh, we had to reduce, change that charge or he was going to lose his entire pension. Uh, of 20 years as a police officer with outstanding credentials. I saw other credentials. Uh, but he had developed a drug problem, and he, he really messed up that day. He calls the police out. I mean, that shows you how much under the influence. And so the, the consequences were going to be so severe for somebody who had served his community uh, well, so we changed the, the, uh, the charges to, so that he wouldn't lose his pension. You know, the thing that I would say is— As okay, a DA, so, that was— yeah. Somebody listens to this and they think, okay, well, Brock Turner's at Stanford, so because he's at Stanford, he gets a better outcome. Or the officer was able to have a good career and have a good pension, mm -hmm. and because he had a good career and good pension, he gets a better outcome. Yeah. And I think that the j that's part of the job of lawyers to force judges, force decision makers to get up close to our clients. And it's not just because a client doesn't isn't at Stanford doesn't mean that they don't get the benefit of the advocacy that we can provide, it might just require refocusing our efforts. So while Brock Turner's at Stanford, he's not in the foster care system, or he does not have an educational history that involves traumas that we can identify, but we have to be willing to look for it. So the problem can be us attorneys not getting up close to our clients yeah. and not doing the work of presenting that to courts, you know, because when we come to you and we describe Sajid's client who was able to get his child back and who was able to get off drugs, like that's who, who, the... Who, by the way, is yeah. not an officer, is yeah. not... Uh, 
a Brock Turner, a rich person by any means. Right. It's, I just wanted to say it happens. Yeah. It happens every day in other cases without yeah. these special people. It's so about mitigating. What I'm yeah. hearing from you, Avi, is two twofold. One is there is an onus on us. I think, Judge, you and I talked about this on our phone conversation yesterday. Is there's an onus on public defenders to be able to take that on, to get close, to really get to know our clients, to have a holistic practice uh, where we look beyond our clients' charges, beyond their rap sheet, actually get to know their backgrounds, where what their context is, where this crime kind of arises from, and then being able to advocate for them in, in our courthouses and tell their stories and tell their stories um, and be able to, con again, contextualize their crime and then be able to paint a picture of their prospects relative to their circumstances. So in the same way that Judge Persky was able to look at Brock Turner as a human being, for all his accolades before, all his accomplishments up to his incident, and then to see all his prospects in the future relative to his circumstances, Stanford student, swimmer, all those good things, uh, that we would want a judge like Persky or anyone else to look at our clients relative to their circumstances. Again, wanting to encourage that type of holistic analysis of our clients as opposed to this zoomed-in approach of rap sheet, charge, sentence, and it becoming almost like a computer program that you alluded to in the, at the top of our conversation. And I felt like, and I continue to feel like this recall takes us back to that equation, you know, crime charged, person convicted equals this offense. And actually, that's what happened in the case is that uh, ultimately the law changed because of the Brock Turner case. And that discretion that Judge Persky had is no longer available to a judge uh, like him or if the, your honor was on the bench. And those mandatory minimums makes the DA, again, more powerful because if they charge that the yeah. judge must and and they're convicted of that charge right. now the judge must impose prison. right and so the judge even if he wanted to look at the humanity of brock turner or the next guy that gets convicted of those charges let's say it's a 18 year old community college student in east san jose that gets convicted of that those charges a judge is not going to be able to, because of the law change, going to be able to have that holistic analysis of that offender. And instead, it's just going to be, you got convicted of these crimes, you're going to serve this time, and the humanity is lost. Even and, if it's a plea. Even if it's a plea. Right? And, and not only that, and, and you guys are most aware of this as public defenders, mandatory minimums. Uh, are great leverage for the DA. They could have a weak case. Maybe it's 50-50 a trial, which is a weak case for a DA. And uh, they could force a plea uh, to a lesser offense just because your, uh, your client's worried about the mandatory minimum that he would face if he were convicted. Right. So now it gives them more leverage because nobody wants to go down on this charge now because it's mandatory prison. And the DA might have a weak case and say, all right, well, I'll reduce the charge to this, but you have to, yeah. and they'll control the sentence. Right. Because the uh, DA, when they reduce a charge, a lot of people don't know, they do it with conditions that oh, I'm only going to reduce it if you get this sentence or something. And uh, just more leverage for the DA going yeah. backwards as far as you guys are concerned. But uh, in all these high-profile cases yeah. um, tend to lead to really tough laws sometimes that it takes years to, to undo. undo. Yeah, and that was... Why I think we were trying to get out on the front end of this is that we I, I for or we foresaw these uh, these consequences coming down the barrel. So, but the fight still continues, and we'll see we'll see where it, where it goes. Why don't we do a quick break, and then we will do our things. 
Okay, Sajid, why don't you uh, why don't you start us off with your thing? Uh, my thing is just gratitude. I came back from a two and a half a week trip to Mecca, uh, Saudi Arabia, for my Hajj pilgrimage. So I'm really grateful for the experience. It was a really eye opening experience. Grateful that you hosted a podcast while I was gone with Kristen Carter, and so I'm just really. Grateful for the trip, grateful to be back, grateful to be back public defending, doing this podcast, to be here with the judge. So my thing is gratitude for all of those things. So I have uh, two things. Uh, my first thing is an article that we'll put out on the Aider and a Better Twitter feed. A San Francisco Chronicle reporter went with the Golden State Warriors to San Quentin State Prison for a, uh, they have a fixed basketball game. They're called the Greens. It's like a green jersey players for the warrior staff so bob myers plays uh the general manager a number like videographers play they all have like at least collegiate basketball experience and they play a team that's fielded at san quentin san quentin has a gm like an informal gm they have about 100 or a little under 100 people try out for the team so that they can play the warriors have uh their team has been uh kind of winning all the games and there's this write-up about the most recent game and one of the things is like bob myers had like 38 points and 30 rebounds so he's not 30 rebounds yeah yeah they're not (laughs) taking it uh lightly but it's a great article about kind of how the warriors have connected with uh the community at san quentin is that the same trip that draymond and durant went to san quentin yeah yeah so that whenever you'll see the warriors players at san quentin it's part of some sort of basketball outing so they brought the larry o'brien trophy and it was just cool to see uh, the people who they're playing against as people they see on the court, uh, a real restorative process for the the people who are incarcerated, a, a great process for the team, and it's just it's awesome. So we'll put that article out. My other thing is uh, in California, uh, an act just passed called the RISE Act, and it's on Governor Brown's desk. It would eliminate drug sale priors. So we wind up in California having these huge sentences for people for narcotics trafficking because of these things called sales priors. So if you have possession for sale of drugs, you could face three years in prison or now three years in jail. If you have a sales prior, prior conviction, then there's three years for that, no matter how old it is. And if you have 10 of those because you sold drugs to an undercover officer 10 times and got 10 convictions, uh, then you have 30 years of priors. Uh, So if the RISE Act is signed, then sales priors uh, will be gone and uh, it will be just chipping away at this war on drugs uh, that needs to officially end. Can I add a thing? But the DA lose their leverage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was bad. another another bill that I forgot to mention. There's a bill that just uh, passed the legislature. Wait, that's going to end well, up on the governor's Let's give you desk. another thing. Let's yeah, have another thank thing. Thank you. I'm taking one anyways. Um, <laughs> this is f- I'm making up for my lost <laughs> thing because I missed the last episode. There's a, another bill that just passed the legislature to create a tiered uh, sex offender registry uh, where uh, certain categories of offenders can apply to get their names off the registry after 10 or 20 years. And so I think that's a great step in the right direction too. I hope Governor Brown signs it to give our clients and those convicted of sex offenses that have turned their lives around and rehabilitated the opportunity to not be defined by the worst thing that they ever did and get a chance to live with their families and with some sense of normalcy as opposed to being kind of a publicly vilified sex offender. So I'm excited about that. Hopefully we have too many it. people on the sex offender list. I think everybody agrees with that. Yeah, actually, law enforcement supported the legislation because they said it actually diminishes their ability to track and monitor those that are actually higher risk sex offenders because the registry is so bloated. So it's bloated with a lot of uh, crimes that aren't necessarily uh, uh, ones of high recidivism as opposed to serious right. sex crimes. Exactly. Judge, you have a thing? 
my, my thing I'm afraid is going to be more serious, uh, but I tend to be a pretty serious guy. Um, uh, and it's the message that I talked to you about on the phone yesterday. Um, only love can conquer hate. Uh, it's in the old what's going on song from Marvin Gaye. If you go back, uh, long enough uh, to remember that you guys probably don't but um, do. you see uh, it, I just look around and I see so much hate uh, amongst people who are supposed to be you know progressive thinking people and uh, uh, there's just too much hatred there's too much name calling there's too much labeling uh, going on um, uh, show the love because only love can conquer hate you yelling at them and screaming at them at people that disagree with you on points of view is never going to change their mind. It's going to entrench them deeper into their hateful, hateful thoughts. Um, so that's my only message. Only love can conquer hate. Perfect, Judge. Well said. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to Aider and a Better, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>